morning. I am excited. Thank you. Let's try again. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you. I'm excited for another opportunity to stand in this space with this group here, this Walker Harbor community. Um, I'll introduce myself again. My name is Ruth Jones. I'm a social worker. I'm not a trained pastor, but I find myself very blessed to be able to blend some of my social work experience. It's making a lot of noise. Um, with scripture and participate in teaching once in a while. So this morning we will continue our series about Christ informing who we are as undivided selves, showing up the same way in every relationship. This week I'll be talking specifically about what it means to model Christ when we are at home and with our families, either our biological families or our found families, there's a few different scripture passages I'm going to read through, and then I'll do some talking. I want to leave some time at the end for some reflection to ask ourselves some questions and to wrestle with some of those answers. Is that sound coming from me, or is the other microphone still on? It's okay? Okay. All right. Since I'm a social worker and not a biblical scholar... I find it helpful to read some passages from the message. So that's the translation or the interpretation that I'm using this morning. So we're going to start out in Acts 16, verses 1 through 6. This is again from the message. Paul came first to Derby, then to Lystra. I apologize if I'm saying those wrong. He found a disciple there by the name of Timothy, son of a devout Jewish mother and Greek father. Friends in Lystra and Iconium all said what a fine young man he was. Paul wanted to recruit him for their mission, but first took him aside and circumcised him so he wouldn't offend the Jews who lived in those parts, as they all knew his father was Greek. As they traveled from town to town, they presented the simple guidelines the Jerusalem apostles and leaders had come up with. That turned out to be the most helpful. Day after day, the congregations became stronger in faith and larger in size. Thank you. They went to Phrygia, maybe, and then on through the region of Galatia. Their plan was to turn west into Asia province, but the Holy Spirit blocked that route. There's a lot of things we could talk about in this passage. I'm going to focus on just a couple things. In this passage, we see Paul encountering and beginning his working relationship with Timothy. Just a backstory, real quick Paul had been to Lystra before, where he was stoned by the people there to the point they thought that they had killed him. He was presumed dead. But he went back. See what those guys are up to, right? I'll bring Silas this time. It does not say so explicitly in the text, but it seems as though Paul had either met Timothy when he was in Lystra before, or he heard about him since he had such a great reputation. And this is Timothy from 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy fame, so he's kind of a big deal. So this is a big moment, his first interactions, his first um, working with Timothy. So along with Silas, they continue to travel and they build churches in Corinth, Thessalonica, and Philippi. The relationship between Paul and Timothy morphs and builds over time. From the time that they meet until the time that they each finish their careers, there's a lot of changing and growing that happens. 
And we can see three different categories. There's parenting, when they first start working together. There's partnering, as they continue to build churches together. And then there's pace setting, as Paul moves kind of towards the end of his career and starts to pass the torch on to Timothy. So let's look at one of Paul's first letters to Timothy. In the opening and then again in the closing, Paul refers to Timothy as his son. I, Paul, am an apostle on special assignment for Christ, our living hope. Under God, our Savior's command, I'm writing this to you, Timothy, my son in the flesh. All the best from our God and Christ be yours. It's a nice opening to a letter, right? My son. And then again, he, in the closing, I'm passing this work on to you, my son, Timothy. So here, Paul and Timothy are working together as a parent and a child. Paul's the one with the experience, with the knowledge, and he's teaching that to his son, Timothy. So next, we'll move on to a passage from Romans. Again, this is another communication um, from Paul. And here are some more greetings from our end. Timothy, my partner in this work, Lucius and my cousins Jason and Sosipater all, all said to tell you hello. So this is after some time has passed and they're beginning to work together as partners. And finally, we go to one of Paul's later letters to Timothy, kind of one of his closing letters. This is 2 Timothy 3, verses 10 through chapter 4, verse 8. You've been a good apprentice to me, a part of my teaching, my manner of life, direction, faith, steadiness, love, patience, troubles, sufferings, suffering along with me in all the grief I had to put up with in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra. And you also well know that God rescued me. Anyone who wants to live all out for Christ is in for a lot of trouble. There's no getting around it unscrupulous con men will continue to exploit the faith. They're as deceived as the people they lead astray. As long as they're out there, things can only get worse. But don't let it phase you. Stick with what you learned and believed, sure of the integrity of your teachers. Why, you took in the sacred scriptures with your mother's milk. There's nothing like the written word of God for showing you the way to salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Every part of scripture is God-breathed and useful one way or another showing us truth, exposing our rebellion, correcting our mistakes, training us to live God's way. Through the word, we are put together and shaped up for the tasks God has for us. I can't impress this on you too strongly. God is looking over your shoulder. Christ himself is the judge with the final say on everyone, living and dead. He is about to break into the open with his rule, so proclaim the message with intensity. Keep on your watch. Challenge, warn, and urge your people. Don't ever quit. Just keep it simple. You're going to find that there will be times when people will have no stomach for solid teaching, but will fill up on spiritual junk food. Catchy opinions that tickle their fancy. They'll turn their backs on truth and chase mirages. But you... Keep your eye on what you're doing. Accept the hard times along with the good. Keep the message alive. Do a thorough job as God's servant. 
You take over. I'm about to die, my life an offering on God's altar. This is the only race worth running. I've run hard to the finish, believed all the way. All that's left now is the shouting, God's applause, depend on it. He's an honest judge. He'll do right not only by me, but by everyone eager for his coming. It's a lot. It's a nice long letter. It's a lot of encouragement. Um, in this passage, Paul is modeling a life of faith to Timothy and pace setting, telling him, keep it up, keep going, you're doing a great job, don't forget all the great things you've learned along the way. He's reminding Timothy of all the good work he has done over their careers together and of what it means to live for Christ. He encourages him to keep going, keep the faith, keep the message alive. From these snapshots, we see the different ways that we should show up and model Christ in our personal relationships or at home. We show up as parents, we work with spouses or significant others or roommates as partners, and we set the pace with encouragement and reminders to keep up the good work. My task today is not to spend a lot of time interpreting the specifics of what is in Paul's letters, and what all of his instructions to Timothy mean. I don't want to downplay what Paul is saying in 2 Timothy. It's an exhortation, a convocation, words of encouragement that we all need to hear. And I encourage you to refer back to it, to sink into it as a reminder of what all this is about. Paul and Timothy exemplify a Christ-like relationship in their parent-child dynamic their partnering dynamic, and their pace-setting dynamic. These dynamics are also present in our relationships at home with our families, and that is why we have spent some time looking at the, the history of their relationship and some of the things that we know that Paul wrote to or about Timothy. We can follow this model in our own homes, with our own families. So that is my task today to bring to your attention that because we are followers of Christ, Christ must inform who we are and how we are in our relationships at home and with our families. So I'm not referring to each of your specific domiciles, your house, your apartment, your condo, or your specific relatives that you live with. Maybe it's your family or your found family, the people that you commune with. So it's whatever you're, where, where the home is, sign reads. If home is where the heart is, then that's what I'm talking about. If home is where you make it, then this is the place that I'm thinking of. Maybe home is where the plants are, home is wherever we are. I put home is in the Google search. There's a cookbook called Home is Where the Eggs Are. Maybe that fits for you guys, I don't know. People just really like eggs, I guess, I don't know. So what does that mean to be Christ-like at home? Um, have you ever heard the saying, the cobbler's children have no shoes? Okay. It's a folksy way of saying that the family of a skilled or knowledgeable person are often the last to benefit from their expertise. So kind of keep that in mind. So going back to what does it mean to be Christ-like at home, I wonder if we can start by contrasting it with being Christ-like at work. 
or at least holding the two up next to each other. So here's another statement. I wonder if you can relate to this. Work gets the best of me. My family gets the rest of me. Think about if this description resonates with you. We pour out our energy at work, including the energy it takes to be kind, patient, gracious, Christ-like, because we know it is expected of us, and we don't want to get any nasty grams from HR about being rude. We need to retain clients, or hopefully, we genuinely want to present this side of ourselves in our professional circles. But then, at the end of a long day, we head home, we log off, all of our kindness, patience, and grace is worn thin. Our partners or our children or our roommates get a cranky, impatient, crusty shell of a person. The person we were at work is gone, and we've become an unrecognizable version of that person. So if this resonates, I ask you, which is the true version? Which you is really you? And what's the point of being kind and considerate? What's the point of being good news to your colleagues and your clients if you're going to go home and be bad news at home? Uh, I'm going to pause real quick. When I was preparing this message, I realized I started putting in a lot of social worky stuff. And I wondered if I needed to have some kind of signal so you would know you were being social worked. So it's not fair otherwise, right? Social workers, we're really sneaky. Sometimes it's just a look, just a little sound. Interesting. And you've been social worked. You don't even know it. Bam, it happens. So I thought about, like, oh, maybe it's something I should wear, like my regalia from when I graduated with my degree. It's like, no, nobody likes to show off. And also, I couldn't find it. So instead, I have something else. Ooh, some feedback for you. I have a little flag to wave so that you'll know that social work is occurring. <laughs> Let's try it out. So back to what I was saying. Good news at work, bad news at home, grumpy and crusty with your family, etc., etc. I am gently suggesting that if this is you, and this is happening day after day, week after week, the months and years are starting to pile up, it's time to start asking yourself some questions. Are you taking care of yourself? How are you prioritizing the way that you spend your resources? Not just your money, your time, but your energy. When is the last time you felt like you? the version of yourself that resembles Christ? And what would it take to start nudging you back towards being that person? Whatever it takes, please start doing it now. This takes energy, this takes heart, this takes courage, but you can do it. And I want to clarify too, it's okay to be grumpy, to feel tired, to be worn out, that happens. We're short on patience sometimes. Being Christ-like does not mean that we have to be happy, shiny people all the time. It's human to have limits. Even Christ had his days of being tired and worn out. 
It's what we do with those feelings and how we interact despite feeling tired and worn out that makes the difference. It can be helpful to make sure that you know how you are feeling and to communicate that to whoever you are sharing time and space with. It seems like a really simple idea, but for some people it can be earth-shattering or life-changing. Some of us aren't really great at gauging how other people are feeling, so if they just communicate with their words how they're feeling, great, we're off to a great start. So maybe that sounds something like, I had a really rough day today. I'm here, but I'm feeling distracted. Or, I'm really short on patience today. I'm making an effort, and I am sorry if I seem irritable. It takes all the guesswork out of the other person's life, and they just know, oh, it was a bad day, it's not me. Maybe it's a little bit you, but that's for another time. Um, here comes some more. So paying attention to the transition from work to home can also be really helpful. For those of us that have a commute, you can use that time in the car, on the road, to process through the events of the day and start shifting our attention towards what it's going to be like at home. We can shift our attention and focus towards life at home with our families. For some people, the commute is just walking into another room or another part of your house or apartment. If this is you, I encourage you to build in some kind of ritual or routine to signal to your mind and your body that you're home now. Work is done. Maybe it's mindfully closing your laptop and putting it away so it's not in your sight anymore. Um, I know some people that work from home and kind of their end of the day ritual is like they close their laptop, they put it away, maybe change the lighting, like light some candles, maybe make it a little bit softer lighting so it's like, oh, I'm home, I'm not working anymore. Okay, I'm putting it down now. Um, so if we are being truly Christ-like, we will demonstrate the same compassion and patience for our families at home that we have for our clients and colleagues at work. Okay, I think I'm ready for the next slide. No, this, this is where you're supposed to be. This is perfect. West Michigan Nice. So in some, I think in one of my previous teachings, I talked about how the agency where I work is going through a process to implement a model to ensure that we at our agency are doing our work in a trauma-informed way. We're almost at the end of our implementation process and working towards certification. So our consultant has been visiting the agency and talking with us about the areas where he's seen growth and where he sees room for continued growth. He's from New York, like New York City, born, raised, and continues to do most of his work in that area. And in talking with us, he shared kind of a culture clash that he experienced, um, this phenomenon, phenomenon, I can say it, of West Michigan nice. So not only was this a culture clash for him, but it also turns out it's a huge barrier to have an, having open, honest, meaningful conversation in pursuit of conflict resolution. Are you familiar with this concept? Okay, well, I'm gonna end up beating it to death since you already know what it is, that's all right. 
Have you experienced it as a victim or a perpetrator? If you're not familiar with it, or just for clarity of what I'm talking about, here's the gist of it. It's the practice of being nice to one another in order to keep the peace, keep things moving, and avoid conflict at any and all cost. I think it could be expanded to cover most of the Midwest, because I've experienced it places other than Michigan. But either way, it's certainly part of the culture here. West Michigan nice people avoid conflict because it's not nice to disagree, right? Or at least not openly. It's a way to move through interactions, stuffing any negative feelings that we may have about each other, and then we unstuff the feelings as soon as the other person is out of earshot by venting, complaining, ranting, talking trash, etc., to whoever happens to be standing nearby. There's another variation of West Michigan nice, you only get to see it once in a while, where the negative feelings are never actually acknowledged, even by the person feeling the feelings. Their faces just get scrunchier and scrunchier, and they stuff and stuff and stuff and stuff, and they don't understand why they're so angry all the time. It's because they never unpack it and talk about it. So is this what you all were thinking when I started talking about West Michigan nice? No, it's different? OK. So that's what I'm talking about, West Michigan nice. See how scrunchy his face is? <laughs> He's not acknowledging his negative feelings. It's just stuffing him. So now that you've heard this description, does this resonate? Have you done this or experienced this? I have. I've done this to other people, and I've been on the receiving end. It's not done out of malice or with ill intention. It was the way I thought I was supposed to conduct myself around other people, because it's so ingrained in the culture where I was raised, which is the Midwest. But isn't this the preferred way to move through life? Isn't it nice to be nice? Why would we want to make anyone else feel bad? Do we really want to waste our precious time together on arguments and disagreements? It's not nice to be nice. It is kind to be clear. Say it one more time. It is kind to be clear. That's Brene Brown that I heard that from. I didn't come up with that. It is kind to let somebody know how you feel about something they said or did so that you can discuss it and repair your relationship. It's not kind to keep acting nice and keep others guessing how you really feel about them or how you feel about what they did or they said. Here's another one that I think is really helpful. When we avoid hard conversations, we're not keeping the peace, we're keeping the tension. This is by Mastin Kip. I think he's a life coach. So he's saying all of those feelings that we have towards each other, resentment, disagreement, anger, rejection, whatever it is, it'll keep festering and growing until it's addressed. So at this point in my little talk here, some of you are thinking, well, Ruth, that's great. Your flag is neat. But what does this have to do with Jesus and the Bible? 
To that I say, thank you. I think the flag is neat too. I'm going to put it back down again. And I will tell you what it has to do with Jesus and the Bible. I'm reading a book about how having hard conversations correlates with healthier relationships, healthier workplaces, and healthier bodies. Mind, spirit, body. In short, opting into this hard work makes the world a better place. And if that's not building the kingdom of heaven on earth, then I don't know what is. When we are fake to each other, we are not being Christ-like. When we take the path of least or no resistance in our relationships, we are not giving ourselves or others the chance to learn and grow from conflict and disagreement. We are missing out on opportunities to keep building the kingdom of heaven by having healthier communities, relationships, and bodies. And I'll ask you too, what's the point of being nice to somebody to their face and then waiting until they are gone to say all kinds of mean and disrespectful things? How is that Christ-like? What if the person that's hearing this, the person that you're unloading on, the person that you're venting to, is not a Christ follower? Perhaps they're curious or skeptical about these so-called Christians that they keep seeing. Do you think they're going to be excited to join this group of people who appear to be somewhat two-faced and even hypocritical? Nuh-uh. So what's the fix? What do we do? Solution focus. I'm a social worker. How do we show up as our whole selves at home with our families and our friends? Oh, I'm ready for the next slide. Thank you. Be where your feet are. I don't remember where I was or what I was doing. It was a few weeks ago. I was in a meeting or a gathering, and I heard this prompt, be where your feet are. I still marvel at the irony that I can't remember what I was doing <laughs> when I was told to pay attention to what I was doing. But it, it stuck with me. That's what matters. It stuck with me. So be where your feet are is a reminder about mindfulness and being mentally and emotionally present in the same spaces that our bodies occupy. It's a reminder to stop going through motions and put agency and intention back into your actions. Sometimes our thoughts and our focus are miles and miles away from where our physical bodies are. And sometimes other parts of us, the Christ-like parts, are also miles and miles away from where our physical bodies are. So I've added the reminder to be Christ where your feet are. It's a reminder to show up fully, to bring all of your parts back together and to model Christ wherever you are, whoever you are with, whatever you are doing to live a life undivided so that you get the best of them, they get the best of you. You're seeing and taking opportunities to grow in your faith together and to keep building the kingdom. So I have another flag. I'm going to pull out real quick. Watch out for the feedback. Oh, sorry. This is my personal story flag. I'm going to share a little bit about me. 
This topic of showing up at home for your family and being Christ where your feet are, it's really, really important to me. It's a big part of my story. It's part of my story about why I left the church for as long as I did before I was able to find my way back. My dad was a pastor when I was growing up. In the communities where we lived and he served, the culture included an expectation that the pastor have a certain persona and a certain reputation. Sitting in the church pew as a child and eventually an adolescent, the man I saw in the pulpit was not the same man who showed up at home to be a spouse and a parent. I got the man who was exhausted, frustrated, and short-tempered while I watched the congregation get the jovial, gracious, shepherd figure that they expected. Parents, your kids are watching you. They see you. As an adult, I have insight into how and why he seemed to live this divided life. As an adult, I'm able to have grace and compassion for that man, for that little girl. He was a good father in the ways that he knew how to be. And my trauma-informed view reminds me, people do all sorts of things to survive. We do all kinds of things that are unhealthy in order to help us get through situations that seem like there's no other way to get through. That doesn't make it all okay. Parents, your kids are watching you, and they see you. At the beginning, I promised I was going to leave you alone with your thoughts for a few moments. And that's the part we're at right now. So here's some questions I want you to ask yourself. Make or take a note. I challenge you to ask for feedback from the people that you live with, your family or your found family. Just going to leave some space in between the questions. Do I act differently at home than I do in other parts of life? And if so, how? What's the best part about living with me? What's the worst part about living with me? What's something I can do to make it better? Make sure you get feedback on this one because sometimes our own ideas of what can make things better is different than what others want to see from us. When was the last time I felt like me, me? like the person who models Christ. What's something I can do this week to bring me back to myself? What's something I can do to remind myself to be Christ where my feet are.
Will you join me in prayer? Dear Father in heaven, we come to you today with hearts of gratitude, with thanks. Um, we're thankful for this time to spend with each other, with you, to hear from your word. Um, we ask for your grace and your patience as we go into the rest of the week, spending time with our families um, and at home with our partners and spouses. Uh, we pray that you will bless us in those spaces, that you will take care of us and help us to take care of one, one another. We pray that you will bless this congregation, this group, as they go out into the rest of their lives after they leave church this morning. I ask that you care for each and every person here. We pray this in your name. Amen.